You're listening to Trek FM. Welcome everyone to another episode of Literary Treks. I'm Christopher Jones and I have Matthew Rushing here with me. Hello, Matthew. Hi, Chris. How's it going? It's going quite well. And uh, I was really happy with our last episode where we talked to Kirsten Bear. And I, I think our listeners were too. We've gotten a lot of great feedback on Twitter from that. Yes, yes. I, I had such a good time talking to Kirsten. She's uh, just a great author, one, and um, just listening to her talk about her passion for Voyager, uh, how much she knows about Voyager, was really interesting. I I hadn't even considered that there's somebody out there who's watched each episode maybe 10 to 15 times, and so having that kind of devotion really shows up in her writing. It does. Uh, it, it was very interesting to me, just that insight into Voyager. Very different angle from what you've heard on other shows in the past, I think. Yeah, definitely. And um, I think that, uh, you know, it really, again, when you pick up her books and you are reading through them, you are seeing um, every bit of potential in each of the characters that you had really hoped would be there um, when you first watched Caretaker. Um, And then, of course, were subsequently let down in. Uh, as the series went on and so um, and I'm really glad that they have just kind of given her a full reign uh, to work with these characters and um, kind of make them into everything I think we've hoped they could be so yeah and I and, and speaking of giving her full reign and I thought she did a great job of not revealing this little tidbit on the show because you know we want to keep it under wraps but the way that she's going to bring in and she's going to have Lieutenant Monkey from Resolutions as a regular bridge crew member in future novels, I, I thought that was uh, brilliant. And, you know, mm-hmm. since the uh, Vic Fontaine days on Deep Space uh, Nine, yes. I, I've never seen the creative heads give that much latitude to the writer. Well, you know, with having um, Lieutenant Monkey show up, I, I think um, that Voyager books are just going to take off um actually uh you know she didn't want us to reveal but i'm really glad to to be able to tell our listeners that's actually going to be the cover um and uh (laughs) for the next voyager book um it should be because you know cover art is really important for sales and especially if you want to get on that new york times bestseller list i don't think maybe short of spock maybe I think Lieutenant Monkey is the only way to go. Well, yeah, and and especially Lieutenant Monkey in his Starfleet uniform. Um, it's <laughs> right. It's something to behold. <laughs> it really is. All right. Well, before we jump into news, let me ask you, Matthew, as you head into what I suspect is probably a rather warm winter in Texas. What are you spending your time reading these days in the Star Trek universe? Well, um had just finished the um, latest David Mack book, which is uh, was excellent. Silent Weapons, really enjoyed that. The review is up on the site. Um, and 
just got a copy of um, Federation, the first 150 years, and so I'll be working my way through that and uh, writing up the review for Trek FM. And uh, really neat, when they sent it to me, one of the ladies sent me a note, um, and so we will be able to have the author on um, once I finish the review. And so we'll be able to set that up and have him on the show and talk about that book. So I'm really excited. I I got a chance to look through this book um, just a little bit so far. It is beautiful. Um, If you are looking for something to get that Star Trek fan in your life, something for Christmas, this is really it. Uh, it, It's it's incredible. And the stand, I mean, it talks to you in Hukaro Sulu's voice. Um, unfortunately, it oh does not my. say, yeah, it doesn't say, oh my, <laughs> but yeah, there, you know, it's, it really is. It's so cool. I loved it. I think it should. I think they should program it so that as you flip through the history of the Federation, as in the history of any culture, there are those moments that are just very surprising. And I think that when you flip to that page in the book, it should say, oh my, Yes, that that would be excellent. Kind of like those cards, you know, they have now that you open them and you get the nice little song that plays. So every time you turn that one page, it's like, oh, my. <laughs> I think that would be an excellent touch. Maybe the history of the Federation, the first 150 years, second edition will include that feature. Yeah, it really could have only been made better when I was flipping through if you know, Sulu's voice had come through with those dulcet tones of, oh my. (laughs) Oh my. Exactly. All right. Well, let's go ahead and jump into news. And while we're talking about these types of reference books, in a way, let's talk about our first story, which is the Star Trek Visual Dictionary, which is coming from Dorland Kindersley. Which, have you seen those Visual Dictionaries before? The ones they do for like Star Wars and... I have, in fact, because actually our illustrator, Isaac, who does all the artwork for Trek FM, he used to work for Dorling Kindersley, and he actually used to work on these visual dictionaries. Excellent. So you know exactly how awesome they are. And I think, you know, it's long overdue for us to get one for Star Trek. I mean, they've put out a thousand Star Wars of these. Um, You know, every time George Lucas decides to change something, they have to go and make us a new one. Um, and so these are, this is going to be really cool. Um, they actually just changed the cover art a little bit a few days ago and, um, but it's got the Borg Queen on there, um, Spock as well as Worf and, uh, some tricorders and stuff like that. So I think it's going to be a really fun treat for fans just to kind of have a big visual reference guide of all the, the props used on, um, the different Star Trek series. It really will. And, and the artwork in these is always so excellent. So having that detailed view, because actually the artwork in Star Trek The Encyclopedia is not always great. You know, sometimes it's not very detailed. Uh, I have a feeling that what we're going to get in here, if the past visual dictionaries are any indication, will be really excellent a high-quality view of the Star Trek props and the technologies that we haven't seen very often in the past. Well, and I'm hoping that everybody will get a copy of this and that they'll want to do more of these because, you know, for the um, the Star Wars books, they've done the big um, 
schematic books where you pull it out and you can see the cutaways of all the different types of ships so i think that that would be something that they could really do obviously for star trek giving us you know the enterprise but also cardassian ships or klingon ships or breen ships you know especially those ships Mm -hmm. uh that we haven't really seen very much of that this would be a perfect opportunity for them to be able to do so i'm really hoping this does well so they'll be encouraged to do something like that and I'm definitely looking forward for the pullout cutaway in this one, where they actually show you the entire technology behind Chief Engineer Argyle's gin distilling setup that he has in the Jeffries tubes. Yes, I'm hoping it's not too um, detailed because I'm worried about kids trying to replicate that with the <laughs> hot water point. heater in their houses. Um, yeah. But what I thought you were going to say was with the schematic pullout of exactly what is underneath seven suit yeah that's um that's a special edition of the book i think it's only going to be available from certain retailers yeah um (laughs) and unfortunately too um we're gonna have to talk about the rest of that in our after dark show so (laughs) that's right so uh, while we're talking about ship cutaways let's jump down to one other related story in the sense of ship schematics, and that's the Onboard the Enterprise book that's coming next year from Mike and Denise Okuda, because this is going to be giving us cutaways as well of the Enterprise D. Yeah, which, um, I, you know, did you ever get the Enterprise D schematics that they did? No, I have. I've always wanted those, but I've, I've never been able to actually get my hands on them. I, well, I'm I, going to buy them eventually. Yeah, I had them all, and I had them all laminated. Um and so they were really, really cool, but it was really clumsy because they're huge. You know, they're um, mm-hmm. larger than most poster sizes. And so I think this will be really neat because it also comes with the CD-ROM and it'll give you an opportunity to do some of those kind of things on the computer where you wouldn't normally, um, you know, you might have to fold out a, a big, huge sheet of paper with this on there. I, I think that's going to be really um, nice and probably give us a look at some of the areas on the Enterprise D that, you know, we never really got to go to on the show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, because we only got to see a tiny part of that ship. It's such an enormous ship. And, you know, I could probably count on my two hands the number of actual locations that we got to see on the show itself. So I'm looking forward to this too. And, and everything that Mike and Denise do is always fantastically done. So I'm looking forward to that. Now, these are both going to be out in March of next year. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Visual Dictionary releases on March 20th, 2013. And the Onboard the Enterprise is going to be out on March 7th. And yes. um, I think you can pre-order both of these from Amazon, probably some other places right now. You can, and they're actually both really well-priced. These aren't really expensive items. And so uh, definitely something I think to pick up. Um, be fun to be able to share um, if you have kids. Uh, this is definitely the kind of thing uh, to allow them to kind of explore and, and kind of really get into Star Trek in a way maybe they haven't uh, you know, there's nothing like being able to flip through. I remember as a kid, I would get those kind of books out from the library all the time. And there was nothing like getting to flip through those. So let's move on into novels now and see what we have up in use there. Uh, you found out a little bit, I believe, about what David Mack has coming up. Yes. Uh, and actually, um, David Mack uh, and James Swallow and David R. George III 
and Una McCormick and Dayton Ward are all going to be working on a five-book series that's going to be coming out starting later uh, fall 2013, and it's going to be called The Fall. It's a five-book series. They'll be loosely tied together, um, and it'll be revolving around the Typhon Pact series. And so it's going to be really good. Um, these are some of the Trek's greatest authors right now, and so um, I do know James is going to be writing the uh, Titan novel in that series, and uh, I had heard that uh, Una will be working with uh, Picard and Garrick, um, so that should be on Cardassia, so that should be really interesting. Um, I'm not sure exactly who David and Dayton will be working with, but uh, this is going to be, I think, an epic series. Um, I get the feeling with all these people involved, something big is going to change. Um, so I'm not sure what to expect, but it's called The Fall, so I'm wondering if somebody big might die or something. I don't know. I would certainly expect something big will happen with, like you said, these are five of the biggest authors in Star Trek at this time. And so if you bring them all together, it should be a, what shall we say, a quadrant changing, a galactic changing event that takes place in the fall. Yeah. So I'm, I'm really excited. I, I love it when they do these kind of series. Um, we have seen this in the Typhon pack already um, doing these kind of loosely based uh, series. And so um, I think this is just another great opportunity um, to give us some great character growth and really meshing some of the uh, 24th century together in a way that uh, we've always kind of wanted them to do. And since we obviously won't get any of those movies, um, well, hey, at least they're still giving us the prime universe in the books. And as they said when I was a kid, you read a book and take a look at the TV in your head. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so, all right. Uh, well, speaking of James Swallow, uh, he has the new book, The Stuff of Dreams, coming up. And um, I believe that he revealed a little more information about this recently. He did. Um, on his website, uh, some of the different Trek authors were kind of passing around this uh, funny meme, basically, of... Um, uh, answering questions about their newest books and so uh, his next book will be uh, a next generation ebook novella it's going to pick up some storylines uh, from generations um, it'll actually take place after david max series um, but it's kind of based on a role-playing game scenario um, from a defunct tng rpg game and uh, he's kind of been kicking it around, he said, for several years, and he's really excited, and so he thought he'd pitch it, and they went for it, and so he's going to try and have the story uh, be something of a uh, later-feeling Next Generation episode um, from some of the later series, and uh, he says that uh, the one-sentence synopsis is, when Captain Picard is summoned back to the mysterious space-time phenomenon known as the Nexus, he and his crew become embroiled in a desperate plot to rewrite history no matter what the cost. What do you think? It's hard to say. I just wonder Lieutenant if Guinan will be there. <laughs> it could be. Maybe. Maybe. Maybe Lieutenant Monkey eventually becomes 
Captain of Voyager. There's a coup d'etat. Captain Monkey becomes Emperor Monkey of the Federation. Oh, goodness, I like and Picard it. has to go back into the Nexus and rewrite history to save the Federation from its greatest threat, Lieutenant Monkey. Emperor mm, Monkey. Mm. Well, and what's <laughs> interesting is that this is not the first time that the Nexus has been used. David R. George III, in his Crucible books, used uh, the Nexus as well as the Guardian on the Edge of Forever to help Kirk defeat death in his Crucible book, mm. Kirk. And so um, the Nexus has been used in kind of a strange way again um, in conjunction with Generations. And so I'm really interested to see uh, what's going to happen in this because it does sound fascinating to me that somebody might be trying to use the Nexus to change time somehow. So Right, yeah. Yeah, it, it does sound interesting. From the synopsis, yes, there's no indication as to what the story will be other than Captain Picard and the Nexus. So, Yeah, it is almost see. as, you know, um, maddening trying to figure out as who the actual villain in the next Star Trek film is. So, Right, right. John, John Harrison. It, exactly, because who is that? <laughs> Oh, goodness. Oh, okay. All right. Well, uh, so that's going to be coming up. And then uh, Dayton Ward shared a little bit more about his next big thing. And uh, the same way on his blog um, that James had done, he just decided to give us a little bit more information. It's going to be set in the original series universe. It's a standalone story, utilizes uh, 1950s UFO uh, paranoia. The Cold War and the escalating space race in the 60s as a backdrop for a Star Trek tale in the vein similar to the New York Times best-selling Eugenics Wars duology. So this should be just a really interesting book. Um, and I think, you know, Dayton was giving us a little bit of information. It's kind of slowly leaked out more and more um, what he's going to be doing. And so I think connecting all those things with a Star Trek bent is going to be a really interesting read. It should be. These kind of books are always interesting where it kind of ties Star Trek into our own world a little bit more. Yeah, definitely always a fun thing. And uh, it sounds like Dayton's having a lot of fun um, just doing this book and putting it all together and trying to tie all those little pieces together. And so. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Okay, well, let's head over now to comics and find out what we have up there. We have um, a little bit of news about new releases coming up and a little bit of news about some delays that we've seen. One of the cool things was that John Byrne had come out with some information about a um, compendium of his work that's going to be coming out in 2013, a hardcover collection of all of his Star Trek stuff. Um, he's written some really great stuff, Assignment Earth, Crew, Frontier Doctor, and all of Romulus. Um, so all of this is going to be gathered for the first time into one collection. Um, and uh, I've been meaning to get uh, Frontier Doctor digitally um, because I really want to mm -hmm. read that because I love McCoy. But I've looked at some of his other stuff he writes great stuff, and I really enjoy the artwork in here. And so I think this is going to be a really cool collection. And I'm really glad that IDW is taking it upon themselves to kind of go back 
and help um, fans really rediscover some Star Trek comics that they might have missed before. Definitely, because I think a lot of fans are probably like me, who, although I like reading the comics now, I haven't always been into the Star Trek comics over the years. Sometimes I'm into them, sometimes not. So I've missed huge amounts of the Star Trek comics themselves. You know, if you go back into, you know, the the 90s, especially that time period, I uh, missed quite a lot of the comics. Yeah. So this is a great opportunity for people to catch up and, and it's, it's great for them to come back and uh, make these things more accessible for everyone as well. Now, this is going to be a hardcover collection. Uh, I do wonder if this is going to be available digitally as well. You know, I was hoping the same thing, um, and mainly because for me, and I, I know you do the same, I like to read the comics on my iPad. Um, it, it makes it a lot uh, easier to have them accessible all the time, um, because especially comics, it's so nice to be able to have something to read just very quickly um, when I'm just out and about and I just need something to read, but I don't want to be you know, necessarily kind of get bogged down in a whole chapter of a book and just pull out one yeah. comic. And so right. um, I'm, I am hoping they'll do that. Um, but I noticed this is going to be coming out in April. So it does look like not only is IDW helping fans rediscover the comics, um, but that does look like they're going to be trying to capitalize on a Star Trek Into Darkness coming out um, and having yeah. something for the bookstores to be putting on the shelves uh, next to all that Star Trek stuff they'll have out. And so I think this is great. You know, fans are going to be going into the stores, coming back from the movie, wanting to get more Star Trek. And, you know, uh, as we both know, uh, the Star Trek books are fantastic. The comics are fantastic. And this is just a great way for new fans to really get connected with the old series. And so I'm really excited for this. That's a real key, too. It's one of the things that I tell people who don't really like the J.J. movie or the Abrams-verse take on Star Trek is that, you know, the, the fan base is aging. The franchise is aging. And we do have <laughs> yes. to get new people into Star Trek again. And, you know, I've actually talked to a number of people on Twitter who are big TOS fans now, but they weren't TOS fans before the J.J. movie came out. They went. Mm-hmm. They saw the J.J. movie. They loved the J.J. movie. Then they went back and they started watching old Star Trek. And then they really became Trekkies. So that that's the one of the big opportunities that I think this reboot offers us. And if that can also help get people in to the books and the comics and the larger Star Trek universe, then exactly. I think that you know what they're doing right now, what J.J.'s doing right now, is really good for the health of the franchise that we you know we hope will always be around well and you know as as larry nemechek has said on the ready room uh, many times friend of the show friend of the site um it, star trek has been kind of reinvented every time it's been on the air for the generation that it's that it's trying to reach and right mm-hmm. now that reinvention is the jj verse and it looks very much like this generation um and so I think we can both agree uh, that we do hope that this movie has a little bit more substance and heart to it, but I'm appreciative to JJ for bringing Star Trek back into the limelight um, and making it something big and exciting and huge. Um, And if it gets people again into these books and into the comics um, and into the larger Star Trek universe, you know, I, I can't thank him enough. 
I think it's doing a good job so far, so hopefully it will keep up. And going back to the Prime Universe for just a moment, you and I have been reading the Hive series from Brennan Braga yes. about the cutest and the Borg Queen and like, I don't know, Spider 7, all kinds of crazy stuff going on with the Borg here. <laughs> <laughs> we've, been, we've been waiting for Hive number three to come out, which was supposed to have been out uh, a couple of weeks ago, and it wasn't. And now we finally know why that is. Yeah, um, well, unfortunately, here in the States, had a bit of a issue uh, with uh, some of our docks on the West Coast um, having a strike, and that actually gave us the delay um, for the comics because they were being shipped from overseas to us. And so now it looks as now that that's been resolved, um, the Hive number three will be coming out December 19th. So I'm very excited to see what will happen because I've been kind of waiting at the edge of my seat, really left with a cliffhanger at the end of uh, the last uh, issue. And so um, I'll be very glad to see what happens. This is why IDW needs to use Transwarp conduits to get their comics from the printer overseas into the comic shops in America. Yes, I was thinking that, um, that, or it would just be great if somebody would please, oh, somebody invent transporter technology so we don't have to worry about this anymore, or just create a stable wormhole from one side of the planet to the other. Any of those would work. <laughs> However, yeah, just you take need your to pick. get it to us <laughs> so we can find out what is going to happen next. Uh, yeah, Brent I need to know hive. what's going to happen to Poseidon Lucutus. <laughs> Don't we all? Today, we're very excited to have Keith DeCandido with us. Hello! So glad that you uh, could join us. I'm really glad that uh, you reached out and uh, asked to, to be on the show. We're glad to have you. Well, you know, I'm so I'm so shy and retiring, so, you know, I, I, I very rarely speak in public, and I'm lying through my teeth right now. Um, <laughs> but Yeah, you've been completely quiet while <laughs> yeah. we've been waiting. Yeah. We, we were wondering if you were going to actually yeah. speak on the show or not. But yeah. no, I, I, it sounds like a really cool thing you guys are doing here. And as a podcaster myself, I appreciate the, the value of it. And, uh, you know, I'd love a chance to talk about, you know, my past work and my upcoming work and stuff. So. Yeah, we're excited about that. Well, on that note, I, I was going to ask you just what has been the, your experience with Star Trek? You know, what made you a fan? Um, what got you into it? Um, I have been a Star Trek fan since birth, or earlier, if my mother is to be believed. So I, was, I was born in uh, 1969, so that was um, during the third season of the original series, and my parents were, were avid viewers of it while it was on the air. And um, and I always watched it. I mean, I, I, I don't remember a time when I wasn't watching it. When I was old enough to remember in the 70s, um, I, live in New I grew up in New York City, still live here, and um, one of the local stations, Channel 11, showed Star Trek every weeknight at 6 o'clock, and that was appointment viewing for me and my parents when I was growing yeah. up. You know, we like we would sit, we would watch Star Trek, and then we'd go have dinner. <laughs> and uh, that was that was the nightly routine. So that was... I grew up with it. Um, it mm. was always... And I always enjoyed it. Um, I remember uh, s some traumatic experiences, specifically the salt vampire from the man trap, uh, always scared yes. the crap out of me. <laughs> uh, as, as well as the big green fat guy from in the children shall eat. Um, oh, well, he's scared. And, and it was, it was years before I could watch the man trap again. I'd never bothered to watch in the children shall eat again because you know why? Um, exactly. 
it, it, it also explains the lack of salt vampires and big green fat guys in my fiction. But... Well, I mean, I don't, I don't think they're any worse for not having them in Probably the books, so yeah. But I always, I, I, I like the characters. I was, I was particularly fond of McCoy and Sulu. They were always my two favorite. But, um, and I got, I got the James Blish books when I was a kid as well. Okay, yeah. And and loved those. And I just, I really, uh, it was always, it was always a part of, you know, my my. My what I what I watched and what I listened to, and what I read, and I also started reading Star Trek novels and comic books. I read uh, DC's comic that they put out uh, in the eighties that Mike right. Barr and Tom Sutton did. Uh, bought that every month. I was a huge novel reader, and um, and I always wanted to be one of the guys who wrote those. So it was kind of cool that that actually you know happened. Yeah, how did that how did that come about? Did you always know you wanted to be an author? Oh, pretty much. There were there were br- brief dalliances when I was very small of wanting to be an actor or a lawyer. The lawyer one was very, <laughs> very brief. Um, no pun intended. And the, the actor thing never really came together. I always liked writing. I, I had a typewriter from when I was a little kid. Um, I wrote a couple of entire novels when I was very young, which have been lost to the ages, for which the ages are grateful. <laughs> and um, I wrote a really bad Star Trek novel in high school. Um, oh, what was it about? I uh, it was a Captain Sulu uh, novel because I always thought okay. Sulu should have his own command, and it was horrible, really, really horrible. Um, and just question now: this a Captain Sulu novel in what year did you write? I that? wrote it in eighty three, eighty four. It was it was oh, I based wow. okay. it on Vonda McIntyre's novelization of Wrath of Khan, which was based on the original script, which mm. had Sulu uh, was supposed to go off and have his own command. Um, right. And and then and also her you know her explanation in, in the novelization of Star Trek Three as to why he didn't get it. Um, okay. And I was using that as the the basis, and then they basically it, it took place um, somewhere in the movie continuity. It was I, I wrote it in yeah it was in high school, so it would have been before eighty six. So I you know Star Trek Four hadn't come out yet, but I sort of assumed that they would all eventually wind up back in Starfleet and everything would be would be well and good again. Um, but uh, I you know like I said, Sulu was always one of my favorite characters. so uh, oh, that's really cool. And one of the joys of actually being you know professionally involved with Star Trek as a grown-up is that I've gotten to meet a lot of these people. in fact, in fact, I got to be one of George Takei's backup singers. Oh, nice. Really? This was at the Shore Leave Convention a bunch of years ago. Um, Robert Greenberger, Peter David, and Michael Jan Friedman have a regular thing they do at Shore Leave every year. They've been doing for, God, 20 years now, called Mystery Trekkie Theater 3000. Oh, nice. And it's exactly what it sounds like. It, they do an opening sketch. They have a mad scientist, which is uh, T. Allen Chafin. And they do an opening skit, and then they sit in front of a projecting screen with their silhouettes on the bottom, and they do commentary on an episode of Star Trek. Um, mm-hmm. You know, uh, and there have been a couple of years where one of the guys, or in one year, two of the guys couldn't make it, and so I'm sort of, I've been their fill-in, and there was one year Mike uh, couldn't do it, so I filled in for Mike. And George was the big guest at Shore Leave that year, and his Q&A um, was right before Mystery Trekkie Theater. Peter and George were old friends. They, they uh, Peter co-wrote George's autobiography back in the day, and they, they've remained mm-hmm. friends and we did a thing where we, we ran up to him after his Q&A was done, the three of us, 
and we did a whole opening thing. This was right after the short-lived reality show, which was people doing things other than what they're famous for. And George, <laughs> George was on it as, a, and he was singing country music. Oh, great! This this reality show was so immensely successful it didn't make it to a second episode. Um, <laughs> and this had just happened a few months earlier when we did this, and so we we went up to him and said, "We'd like you to be in the opening skit." And George was well. I don't know. And we said, oh, come on, it'll be great. Well, I'm not sure I want to be seen on stage with you guys. He said, well, it's okay. We'll, we'll, we'll let you pick pick the bit. We, we, we provided a list, and we hand him a list, and he goes down the list. No. 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 Oh, my. No. And, then and, and he keeps going, and he rejects all of them. And finally, I said, what do you want to do? And he says, well, what I, I, I never got to do what I planned for the second episode of, of the reality show. And he breaks into Patsy Cline's Seven Lonely Days, and me, Peter, oh, and Bob wow. are his backup singers. So we're, we're dancing in the background and, and, and doing all that. It's on YouTube. If you search for George Takei uh, and Keith say... on YouTube, it's the only hit you'll get. <laughs> uh, yeah, I was going to ask if there's a video of this. Yeah, we're going to have to try and put that in the show notes. Depressingly, that nobody, there isn't the opening bit, the 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 talking bit. It's just the the Patsy Cline okay. song, yeah. with with me and two middle aged Jewish guys from Long Island dancing on uh, oh. background. It was um, <laughs> it was it was pretty entertaining. Um, and this was all Peter. That was that he was the one who came up with the with the skit. And it was great because we did it right after George's Q and A, so we didn't give them an opportunity to get up and leave. So we had one of the best crowds we ever had for Mystery Chucky Theater. <laughs> That's awesome. All because of George Decay. Yes, yes, that's awesome. Well, you know they they did. Uh, this is not one of the questions I had, but you know they did write. Um, you know we did get that Sulu novel um, not too long ago, about a couple years ago, Forged in Fire. Um, how did you not get to write that? <laughs> I mean, you're a huge Sulu fan, and you've been wanting to write this since you know ninety eighty six. Yeah, by then, I, I had other things in the hopper, and um, uh, Andy, Andy, and Mike had already done mm-hmm. a Sulu novel for the Lost Era, yeah, series. Uh, they're also big Sulu fans, and they, um, and I, you know, I, it made sense for them to do it because they were working with characters that they'd already established in. Yeah. Um, That's true. In their Lost Era novel. And I was doing something else with the Lost Era anyway. I mean, I, I would have liked... If I had done that for the Lost Era, that would have been cool, but I didn't. Yeah. Um, and, and I'm not sorry about that at all, because honestly, um, I think The Art of the Impossible is, is one of the stronger books I've written. Um, it's one I'm particularly proud of. So I, I, have, I certainly have no regrets about working on that. And, it ma- and like I, I said, it made sense for Andy and Mike to be the yeah. ones to do Fortune Fire. Well, and even though, book, even though, even though, I'm not only a big Sulu fan, but I'm also, you know, one of the go-to guys for. I was at least one of the go-to guys for the Klingons. Yes, you were. Um, but it was cool, and I, I, I liked what they came up with as the solution to the problem um, of how how the Klingons got their grooves back, as it were. Yes, yes, that was that was a good story. I I really liked that story actually. Yeah, and and I actually I, I did do. Um, I was hired. I. I did this every once in a while. I would be hired to do sort of a continuity read on things um, just to make sure everything held together. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in particular, Marco wanted to make sure all the Klingon details were right since I was more immersed in that, you know. But uh, so I got to read it ahead of time and it was, and I enjoyed the hell out of it. Yeah, it was a great book. It's one of, it's one of their best books. Yeah. So. 
I did get to write Kangkor and Koloff in the Seven Deadly Sins anthology. So yes, you did. Well, and I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you about your work with the Klingons. Um, and uh, what did you love about getting to explore Klingon culture? And and what did you love about getting to add to Klingon culture? Uh, all of it. It was uh, <laughs> I, I, my 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 interest in Klingons started when I was a little kid watching watching Channel Eleven, and specifically, I blame Michael and Sarah. Um, because Day of the Dove was one of my favorite episodes as a kid because I thought Kang was awesome. Yes. Um, I loved <laughs> Kang. I loved his voice. I loved the fact that he was basically the Klingon equivalent of Kirk, and he was on the same level as Kirk. Right. Uh, right. Kor was, yeah, yeah. was a good adversary, but he wasn't really... I mean, technically he was a fellowship captain, but Kirk didn't deal with him on those terms. He dealt with him as, as you know, a revolutionary yeah. on the planet, you know, as a planetary governor more than a captain. Kang was... Kirk's equal and op and opposite, and he was completely worthy of it. If you're going to have a character like that, he has to be somebody who you believe can also command a group of people as well as Kirk can, and he did. Yes. Um, yes. And I really liked that, and I just liked. I just I don't know what it was. There's something about the Klingon culture just always interested me, um, and I loved and and Worf was my favorite character on Next Gen. I loved what they did with him. Um, I loved the way the culture was developed into this sort of Viking samurai thing that yeah. that, mm. that Ron Moore and the rest of them uh, developed on Next Gen and then later on DS9 and, and Voyager. And it's something that I really enjoyed playing with um, mm-hmm. and, and getting to flesh out, um, particularly in things like Art of the Impossible and A Burning House, where I really got into the nitty-gritty of the entire culture. I mean, we really only saw the military and the government. And since it's right, a military exactly. dictatorship... Since it's a military dictatorship, the military and the government are the same thing. So um, we didn't get a good sense of the, the rest of, of Klingon life, and I thought there was, there was good stuff to be explored there yeah. and how that culture you know, survives as a spacefaring empire. So. Well, that's, that's something I'd like to ask you, too. What did you think then of um, how Enterprise dealt with you know the head ridges, and yeah. then of course um, they did give us a little uh, peek into uh, Klingon life that wasn't the military, um, with uh, having the um, the lawyer who is representing uh, Archer kind of giving us a whole other side. That's exactly what I was about to ask you too. Was about Enterprise and the Klingons <laughs> too, because we do even in Broken Bow we get that kind of glimpse into the the chamber. Yeah, and you kind of get that feeling of the Klingons as they might have been, say, 100 years, or in the case of what we know primarily of Klingons, which is the next generation DS9 period, a couple of hundred years earlier. And so, yeah, I'm curious what how you thought all that played out in Enterprise, or what might you have done differently with that I, as well? Uh, I have lots of problems with Enterprise, but the portrayal of Klingons wasn't one of them. Um, I thought they did fine with it. I, actually, I love Judgment. It's one of my favorite episodes. I mean, leaving aside the fact that I'd be happy to listen to J.G. Hertzler and John Vickery read the phone book, much less, you know, yes. play lawyers. <laughs> yeah. um, that was that was a, a coup of, of excellent casting. I actually always thought Judgment was amusing because uh, that story would work with any generic human as the person being defended, and which is handy because you, right. you won't have a much more generic human than Jonathan Archer. Um, not a big fan of Enterprise, sorry. Um, it's okay. But, the, but I, li- I liked what that... Yeah, I like the way they, that that story in general, mm-hmm. in particular, and and the show in general, I think did did right by the Klingons. Um, I, to my mind, a lot of um, the two parter 
in the fourth season where they where they um, established the smooth headedness, while clever um, was was a lot of explanation for something that didn't really require one. Um, I really felt that Trials and Tribulations handled it just fine, thanks. Um, you know, I, it, yeah, I like the way yes. they handled it. Yeah, yeah, you know, we don't talk about it. Okay, you know, <laughs> um, sometimes was, you don't need to over-explain yeah. something, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But and, and I also thought that the Enterprise portions of of that storyline didn't really do anything. I, I didn't think that was particularly strong. The stuff with Phlox on at, at the at the base was compelling, and I liked the way they tied it to the augments. I thought that was clever. Yeah, but. Um, it was. I, I just. I. I. In general, I liked what Enterprise did in the fourth season by doing two and three parters because it gave them mm-hmm. a little more storytelling space. Yes. In this case, they didn't need it. I honestly think that would have worked better as a one-hour story that just focused on flocks and and kept the rest of the crew down to minimal appearances. I mean, they've done that before. Yeah. You know, with 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 focusing on one particular character, I think that would have been better as a as a flocks focused episode. Um, well, and he was. I mean, honestly, he's one of the best characters on that show. And so, oh, yeah. it, you know, there's no reason that John Billingsley couldn't completely take an episode. Yeah, yeah. Well, one of the things that I wanted to kind of ask you about, because you've written some of my favorite books uh, in the series, and, and one of them was when you wrapped up uh, the uh, Time 2 series. Um, and you kind of had a tall order, because there was a, so much going on. In fact, I was reading the summary of that book on memory alpha because it's our memory beta it's been a while since i've read it and but i was remembering oh my gosh there was so much going on in this series how in the world did you wrap that up and make it tie into what was going to happen into nemesis and to me make that seem to work seamlessly um the mirrors i guess i don't know but um Uh, it, it was a lot of work, and, and one of the reasons why it did work was because it was it was very much a collaborative effort. Um, the that that series actually started with John Ordover, mm-hmm. and he he didn't actually see much of the the series through to completion because he left he left pocket right when the series was starting up. But yeah. it was his conception, and it actually started with me, John, uh, Bob Greenberger, and John Vornholt in a Chinese restaurant in Brooklyn basically hashing out what we wanted to accomplish here. It was originally supposed to be a 12-book series. It wound up being uh, only nine. Oh, really? yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. we were thinking of it as a one-year thing, you know? Um, uh, and it was intended to be the year leading up to Nemesis. The whole mm-hmm. objective of the series was to A, set up Nemesis, and B, set up post-Nemesis fiction. Right. You know, because we knew that this was, you know, at that point, Nemesis is already out at that point, and you know this is in 2003 that we were uh, doing this. And at that point, it was pretty obvious that that there wasn't going to be any more done with the next gen crew. So we were given carte blanche to to do what we wanted. Plus, at first we were we were um, actually no, it was in 2002. That's right, it wasn't 2002 that we started doing because before the movie came out, um, we were thinking of having. We thought Wesley was going to have a bigger role in the storyline, so he was going to have a, a major a bigger role in in the overall series. Oh really? Mm. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the the idea was that we were going to have him not be a traveler anymore. When his cameo was mm. reduced to him just sitting at the table, uh, <laughs> we decided we decided to keep him as a traveler because I always thought that was a really a big step backward for the character. Anyway, we all did, right? You know, and that, yeah. since since the actual dialogue that established him as going over to the Titan with Riker was cut from the final film, 
we didn't we were then no longer beholden to it. Um, you know, the the thing about cutscenes, it's like you can include them if you want to, but you're not you're only obligated to be consistent with what's actually part of the movie. Um, yeah, exactly. You know, cut cutscenes are fair game, but not you know, you you don't ha- you don't have to if you don't want to, and we didn't want to. So, um, we we didn't we didn't include. You know, there was a whole thing with Wesley that wound up getting dropped. Um, we did include simply because it, it made for an interesting storyline, and it wasn't inconsistent with anything in the movie. We kept the notion that Beverly was offered the job of going to Starfleet Medical. Yeah, mm-hmm. I do. Yeah, that that was the case. That was something we thought we could do with was sort of you know play around with the with you know the character and, and where she's going with her career. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we, you know, that we wanted to, and of course the, the real obvious things were why was Worf back in Starfleet and <laughs> how did, why did Riker now finally after 15 years accept a command after rejecting three of them and what led to Riker and Troy deciding to finally get married. Um, and so those, those were some of the bigger arcs. Plus we wanted to do something that had the, had the enterprise in a bit of disgrace uh, just because we wanted to see have them be disgraced in the opening uh, duology, and then have them work their way back to that. Um, so those those were all the things we wanted to cover. I immediately, when we started planning this, laid claim to the Worf comes back to Starfleet story, uh, partly because I'm the one who had written the most stories of Worf as an ambassador, which right. I thought was a great development for the character. Having said that, ambassador ambassadorial positions are not generally permanent. Um, they're 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 usually temporary. They're not. Um, it's not something you you spend your career being a an ambassador to a particular place as a general rule. So having him come back, you know, and I and I and the more I thought about it, the more I realized that what I had actually worth saying in the book, which was that you know everything he did, he did because other people asked him to do it or because other people needed him to do it. And it was long past time that Worf did something for himself because he is he has been the most unselfish person. Around and and he's had a lot of crap thrown at him, uh, and he's taken it and he's sometimes wallowed in it just for the greater good, <laughs> um, and and has been willing to sacrifice a great deal for uh, for the greater good. And it was it was about time he did something that he did. Basically, it's like I <laughs> I wanna. And Dave gave me the easy option because he had in his duology leading up to it, he had uh, a changeover of presidential administrations. Right. So, um, so that worked out nicely. The um, the other reason why everything tied together nicely was because we were all working together very closely, particularly me, Bob, and Dave. Um, the the last six book, the last five books, rather, um, were were fairly tight because Bob, Dave, and I are all friends. At the time, we were all having lunch together every week. Uh, Bob was working in Manhattan. Dave and I both live in, in New York City. Mm-hmm. So we would get together and just, you know, throw things back and forth at each other and, and you know, make sure we were being consistent and, and all sorts of stuff. One of my favorite things in the whole thing, we and we actually planned this at one of the uh, the lunch gatherings, there was one security guard in Bob's uh, A Time to Love and A Time to Hate. He was the one assigned to protect Picard. And he actually survived throughout the whole thing, which cannot be said for all the other security people, but he made it through. <laughs> yeah. And and he had the hardest job. You know, he had to protect the captain. That was his job. And he, you know, he was in a lot of danger throughout that entire duology, but he made it through alive in the end. And then in a time to heal, I think, uh, he was having lunch with some other people and the building blew up and he died. 
And we thought that was just the perfect security guard death right there. You know, just have this guy, we get to know him, we like him, he survived, you're grateful he survived, and then we drop a building on him. Well, I mean, if you're going to go, that's the way to go. Exactly. So we just did that to be mean, and we like like pulling stuff like that. Because we're, 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 as writers, we are cold-hearted people. Um, And, and, and we we don't feel our characters are are really done until we've really, really abused them properly. But... um, (laughs) But also, one of the things I wanted to do with A Time for War, A Time for Peace was kind of bring, do, do a proper ending for Next Gen that still left it open for other stuff. Uh, kind of be the finale that Nemesis didn't entirely work at being. Yeah, um, it exactly. did. It did partly. But, and, I, and I like the fact that they finally had everybody moving on. That was something that... that bugged me about the original series movies and about the next-gen movies was characters who really should have gone on with their lives. They're they're in the same positions that they were, you know, for 15 years, and it's ridiculous. Um, well, you get to the point on the original series movies, we joke about this sometimes, like, everyone's a captain at some yeah. point. Yeah! Right? <laughs> it's ridiculous. It's like, Captain Sulu, could you set course? Uh, I can't do it right now. Get Captain Chekhov to do it. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I think Captain Spock would be better at running those numbers for us. Is Uhura a captain yet? <laughs> but, but yeah, right. I mean, by start by the time Star Trek V rolled around, all of these guys should have at the very least been first officers somewhere, if not commanding their yeah. own ships. Um, yeah. and uh, yeah, it's just it's just silly. And you know, Riker, Riker should have, honestly, to my mind, for if if I was in charge, um, Riker would have had his own ship in First Contact. That also, like the Defiant, got the crap kicked out of it, and basically having having sort of a reunion on the Enterprise. Um, where, yeah. you know, Riker and Worf, uh, maybe, I don't know, LaForge or Troy, you know, are, are rescued and brought on board. Um, and then they have to all go back in time together. Um, you know, just establish that, that some of these guys have actually gone on to other things. Yeah. Um, and, and Nemesis at least addressed that finally, you know, uh, with the idea that, that, I mean, in the original draft, the Crusher was going to go off, uh, to head up Starfleet Medical, that, um, and, the, and Riker and Troy going off to Titan, which which was a, a long overdue development, um, and and I wanted the wedding, the 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 Riker Troy wedding to be, um, you know, have that, that that little speech that Riker gives before the wedding starts, uh, was something that I thought was important to sort of you know bring everything full circle for next gen as a French, you know, as as a thing, you know, and it was the last time this crew was all going to be together. So. Yeah, and I liked that because it gave. Um... It gave a lot of closure. You know, Nemesis kind of came and I think it slapped a lot of us in the face. We weren't ready for what happened there. Um, And then, of course, we didn't get any more. And so, um, you know, it it had been four years. We had waited a long time. You know, we had hoped that the next movie was going to be better than Insurrection, and it wasn't. And then it was a letdown because there wasn't anything else. So what I really did like about the whole A Time 2 series is that it helped me appreciate the good parts of Nemesis um, and then made me excited <laughs> to continue on in the series of, of novels because I was going to continue to see my favorite characters in a new and different light. And, you know, of all the characters, I mean, I'm, I'm reading David Mack's new series right now. And, and the way that Picard has changed over the last few years in the novels is incredible. Um you know, uh, and it really, I think, started with a time too, um, and you guys making him realize that the mortality that he's facing, um, he's not going to live forever, 
he wants to do something else with his life and it's not just be a starship captain um there's more important things out there like family um and so i i think that that kind of thing that you guys gave to us as fans was wonderful because it's the kind of thing that we loved when deep space nine ended i didn't feel sad Hmm. i felt only sad because i wasn't going to be with my friends every week um but uh i felt completed when that series ended yeah Although I was, and we, we addressed this in the fiction also, I, my only frustration with DS9's finale was that it should have ended with Bajor joining the Federation. Mm, um, yeah. That was that was Cisco's mission from the first episode. And, and if you really wanted to bring it first, yeah. If, yeah. if you really want to bring it full circle, that's where, you know, that the, I, I wish the end of the war hadn't been the end of the series. I think that they should have ended the war, like, for February sweeps, you know, and then yeah. done... Done a done some some aftermath episodes that ended with the finale. You know, hell, save all the fire cave stuff and all the rest of it for for the end. Um, and and then ha- and then end it with Bajor formally joining the Federation, even if you still have Cisco going off to be one with the prophets at the end. Um, you know that 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 was my only frustration with DS 9s finale. But yes, in general, what you leave behind was a good was a much stronger ending. You know. Yeah. Hell, even end, even Endgame for all for all its flaws was a good end, you know it 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 ended the show really the way it kind of had to uh, in the case of Voyager you know just bringing it you know getting them yeah. home although again that's another one where I would have liked to have seen then what happened you know but yeah, yeah. well luckily um, there's been some fantastic books in the Voyager series so um, I we've we talked to uh, Kirsten uh, last week and and fantastic. Her her novels are some of my favorites in the series now, so. Kirsten's done a great job with that. She yeah, uh, I, I'm I'm glad she got stewardship of it. It it was it was always a problem with Voyager. You know, it's I mean it's relatively easy to continue all the other series because you know I mean DS9's still there at the wormhole. You know the Enterprise is still exploring space. Both mm-hmm. you know Kirk's Enterprise, Picard's Enterprise, and Archer's Enterprise are still, after their series are over, are still out there seeking, you know, exploring strange new worlds and whatnot. DS9 is still the port, the gateway to the Gamma Quadrant. Voyager, they came home. Now what? Yep. <laughs> <laughs> and it mm-hmm. was, it was, it was hard to, to work something out. And I, li- and I like the solution they came up with, especially once we, we started dealing with Slipstream Drive, which made it a little more practical. You know, because you didn't yeah. want to do a, re- you didn't want to do a return to Gilligan's Island thing where they get, oh my god, they're stranded <laughs> again, you know. Just, yeah. This is the dumbest crew ever. Yeah, right. <laughs> and Harry's still an ensign <laughs> through all of it, right? Chicote <laughs> yeah. still only talks about one thing: it's being an Indian. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, I, li- I like the solution they came up with is, is have it be a yeah. planned exploration, a re-exploration, really. Um, and, and I think that and, and Kirsten's you know perfect person to do it. It's funny. I have written three, four Voyager stories. Um, and none of them take place in the Delta Quadrant. Um, I, I, yeah, three. I did um, the Mirror Universe Voyager story, yep. which um, had Ke- it did it had a brief scene in the Delta Quadrant, but it had Kess and Neelix coming to the Alpha Quadrant and getting rescued by uh, a rebel cell led by Chakotay. Um, so it was Voyager in reverse, but basically almost nothing in the Delta Quadrant there. The when I used them in the Brave and the Bold duology, it took place before Caretaker. So mm-hmm. it was before that happened, and the short story I did for Distant Shores, which is one of my favorite stories that I, that I've done, uh, was Letting Go, which was all about the people that got left behind. It was a, oh yeah, mm-hmm. 
and yeah. and I had I that was something. I mean, it wasn't something Voyager was in a position to address, um, because it was focused on the ship itself. But I kept wondering, and they address, and they they touched on it periodically, like when when Janeway got the 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 dear Kathy letter from her boyfriend that that Mark right. moved on, um, when they finally got in touch, and and like my my thought was okay, you know what what were they going through? What were you know, Harry's parents and, and Tuvok's wife and kids and Janeway's boyfriend and, and the rest of them. What were, you know, they knew that the ship was lost, but they didn't know what happened to it. And what were they going through? Um, it was inspired at least partly by an old MASH episode called The Party, where BJ basically organized a get-together for everybody's, you know, like Potter's mm-hmm. wife and Hawkeye's father and his, and BJ's wife and, and Houlihan's parents and... and Okay, his sister and all the rest of them all to get together and have a little party in New York, um, and and that was what inspired the the gatherings that happened in in Letting Go, um, including including the families of the people who died in the first hour. That that one one of the things I've tried to do is actually the one of the things that bugged me about the first episode of Voyager was um, when they when they fall down the rabbit hole into the gamma into the Delta Quadrant. Um, the first officer, the chief medical officer, the head nurse, the ship's pilot, and the chief engineer are all killed. Yes. <laughs> By the second hour of the of caretaker, everybody seems to have forgotten they even exist. Uh, right. Yeah. 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 Well, I mean, it it's Voyager. Well, imagine a next generation episode in which Riker, LaForge, Roe, Crusher, and Ogawa are all killed. It would come up in conversation occasionally. Right. Exactly. It would. It would be noted. Poor Cavett and and Stoddy and and I love Stoddy. Stoddy was cool. It was Alicia Coppola, you know. And and the, the 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 medical officer and the chief engineer didn't even get names, you know. I named them in in uh, Raven the Bold, and um, but the the I always thought that was that that always bugged me, you know, that these people were all basically yeah. Died. But um, I'm sorry, it's four stories because technically. In addition to to those three, I also uh, did an alternate uh, reality story in the Myriad Universes series, uh, which actually yeah, touched, that's right. I, I deliberately touched on all all the uh, I didn't I wasn't able to work Enterprise into it, but the others were. Um, I used Scotty in order to have a TOS hit, but uh, involved what would have been TNG, DS9, and Voyager. Except of course, in this timeline, neither DS9 nor Voyager would have happened. Because the Cardassians never pulled out of Bajor. Oh, yeah. Also, the border disputes never happened, so the Maquis were never formed, so Voyager never went to the Delta Quadrant. So, um, but I did do a scene with the USS Voyager uh, with what should have been their actual crew, you know, of Cavett and Stadi mm-hmm. and Tuvok and, and Kim and, and them. Um, and then they get blown up, but that doesn't make them unusual in that story. As the death count in <laughs> the death count in a gutted world was something fierce. <laughs> I, I I I I got my Dave Mack on as I as I joked at the time. Yeah, he does like <laughs> to kill people. He does. I, yes. Um, like I I, I don't want to say who he killed in this newest series, but <laughs> oh my gosh, it was pretty shocking. Mm. Um, so I'll I'll be interested to see how it plays out, but. Wow, the advantage of not of doing fiction where you're no longer tied to, you're no longer uh, uh, obligated to follow actor availability. Mm-hmm. One of the fun things about the Lost Era series was that 
there's no way to tell stories in that era unless you recast everybody because you know the, the, the it's everybody's either too old or too young right uh to play those roles um and so you know because it's in that in between time and you don't have to worry you know you can th- have a novel in which you know Sarek and um Sulu and Uhura and you know a young Curzon Dax and and whatnot all appear right um and and with the post finale fiction um which is pretty much all of them at this point um aside from the original series uh all of them you're because you're freed up you're not dealing with actor contracts and you're not dealing with availability and whatnot you can use whatever characters you want and right. do whatever you want to them um and there can be consequences <clears throat> which uh it it it, it some, it often will make for better stories. Not that you can't tell good stories when you have to put everything back in the sandbox, but um, it's nice to have the additional tool occasionally. Yeah, for sure. Well, and it makes it, it, it gives it a little bit more realism without, you know, just destroying the fact that, you know, we come here to Star Trek land to be entertained as much yeah. as we do to learn something. So, And you don't want to make that kind of decision lightly. I mean, one of the, um, I was the editor of the Starfleet Corps of Engineers series that was mm-hmm. run... Um, as an ebook series from 2000 to 2007, and we had one story <laughs> written by Dave Mack, which in which we killed off half the crew, including one of the main characters, and that was um, that wasn't something we did lightly, but it also wasn't something I wanted. There, there were a couple of things we wanted to accomplish there. One was um, to really, you know, have a death that would be meaningful. I mean, we killed off a lot of other characters. There were secondary characters who only had small roles and wouldn't have the same emotional impact as killing Duffy did. And I also wanted there to be consequences. The the all those deaths on the ship continued to have ramifications throughout the entire rest of the series because it mm-hmm. would, you know, exactly, you know. The, so that I mean, it it lessened as time went on because things do. But it was always it was always a presence in the storyline. And I also, for once, in Star Trek, I wanted somebody to go on a suicide mission and actually die. Yeah, I thought right, that was yeah. important, you know. Um, and and Dave actually had an out. He was willing to you know give us an out and have him get saved at the last minute. And we're like, and and I double checked, you know, I was I was the main editor, but John Ordover, I was freelance, so John Ordover was the in-house editor, uh, and was sort of the editor emeritus of the series, especially in the early days. And you know, we 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 John and I talked about it, and it's like, nah, kill him. <laughs> That's great. Let's let's. Let's really let's have these actions have consequences. Space is a dangerous place. Let let it be dangerous. Space is disease and danger wrapped in darkness and silence. Exactly. <laughs> Which was a great line, and it's true. It is. Yeah. Don't go pander to me, boy. Yeah. But that was one of the great things about the Abrams film was I, I could I've been yes. a, I've been a fan of Carl Urban since he played um, Cupid on Hercules and Julius Caesar on Xena back in the nineties. Yeah, he's great, and he's he's really good. I'm real I'm really glad his career has taken off because he impressed me then, and I actually got to meet him at a few Herc and Zena oh, conventions wow. back in the day. Nice, uh, and he's just an absolute sweetheart, and um and it was just it's just I love seeing him be successful because he yeah. frankly deserves it. He's he was he's honestly. He's my favorite character in the new JJ verse. Oh yeah, uh, I mean his bones is fantastic. Yeah. So and it fits because McCoy was always my favorite. Yeah. Well, and it, yeah, he brings McCoy to life, and I'm I'm really hoping that they give him a little bit more 
uh, of a juicier role in yeah. the in the new one. So the thing I was most concerned about with the Abrams film, uh, more than anything else, going just before we knew anything about it, just that they were doing it, was one of the reasons why the original series was successful was the absolute letter perfect chemistry among William Shatner, Leonard Nimoy, and DeForest Kelly. Yes. And I was really worried that they were not going to catch that lightning in a bottle again. Um, luckily, I thought I, I at least thought that Chris Pine, Zachary Quinto, and Carl Urban did a fine job, and they actually yes, I think you know, so too. they worked as the big three, and that was that was always the worry yeah. there. Well, and for me, this is completely off topic, obviously, but Pine can, yeah, <laughs> Pine <laughs> Pine definitely, um, I think captured. Shatner without mimicking Shatner. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's so many scenes where you're like, wow, that's Captain Kirk on the screen. It, and so, yeah. Well, one of the things that you did in, in the novels, which I thought was incredible, is uh, you took politics <laughs> and you actually made it riveting to the point where Articles of the Federation is one of the books that I would hold up there of Star Trek literature to say, this is awesome. Thank um, you. How in the world did you take, you know, politics and and make it interesting? Uh, um, the thing that interests me most is dialogue, anyway, and the conversations people have, mm-hmm. and that that's the part of the writing I enjoy the most. And so that you know, it was a natural outgrowth of that. I mean, that that originally came about uh, several years before it actually happened. Uh, both John Ordover and his boss at the time, Scott Shannon, uh, who was the publisher for a while, um, they came to me and they said, you know, we want to do a Star Trek version of the West Wing, basically. That was that was the pitch. Um, and, and yes, there is quite a bit of Jed Bartlett in Nambaco. I freely admit that. Um, and the... I mean, Nambaco is actually a combination of Jed Bartlett, um, Mo- Molly Ivins, the uh, uh, columnist uh, who died a few years ago, um, Ann Richards, the former Texas governor, and my great-grandmother. Nice. She's named after my great-grandmother. And um, uh, she died in 2003. Um, and, and I created Baco for A Time for A Time for Peace as much as a tribute to her as anything. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm thrilled that the character has continued to live. I, I honestly didn't think we'd ever see her again after articles. You know, unless yeah. by some miracle I was asked to write a sequel, which uh, the sales figures proved was never going to happen, because um, the book did not do particularly well. But uh, it was—it's funny. It, it was very well reviewed and very well received. It's probably the most praised novel I've certainly the most praised Star Trek novel I've written. Um, but it uh, didn't sell particularly well because I think the people who bought it liked it, but not a lot of people came to the table right. in the first place because it was a very unusual book. Yes. In retrospect, I kind of wish we'd put Spock on the cover. But... <laughs> <laughs> Just on the cover. You know, well, he's in the book. It's not like you yeah. know, he would be lying. He's in the book. He, he plays a role in the book. Uh, and and writing Spock is, and I, I really enjoyed writing Spock as a cranky old man. You know, that was. Uh... Yeah, he's a lot of fun. But anyway, with with you know, like I said, articles came out of the idea of they wanted me to do a Star Trek version of the West Wing, and then it never really came together, and then we started developing a time to. And it was actually partly because Dave was doing, having, you know, basically the fall of a president as part of his story. Right. And we figured, all right, if we're going to do that, let's have, you know, I can do the election, and then I can set up me finally doing this West Wing idea you guys wanted me to do for a while. Um, in fact, uh, th- there was original thought of having a Time for War, Time for Peace, be two books, and a lot of the stuff that wound up being in articles would have been part of that two-book series instead. Oh, okay. Um, in retrospect, I'm, I'm, I, 
in hindsight, I'm glad we did it this way. Yeah, I am too. I think Time for War, Time for Peace worked better as a single novel to, to bring it all together, uh, even though it cost me... It basically cost me a novel contract. Everybody else got, like, the advance for two books. I got the advance for one book. It's like, hey! <laughs> but, um, but it worked, yeah, story-wise, it worked better. And it did. I was glad to do articles um, as its own book. Um, and, you know, it, the thing is, politics actually work fairly well with Star Trek because... Star Trek at its best has, you know, a philosophical underpinning that can work very well. You know, the the idea of doing, you know, politics, it's a good parts version of politics in a lot of ways because the Federation right. is a very ideal and very unrealistic and probably impossible society. But that's part of what makes it compelling um, as fiction, the idea of, of how politics would work in an ideal utopian society. Yeah. Um, and I also, we wanted to like look at, you know, wh- how does it work from, from the other side of it? What does the government do? Mm-hmm. How do they get things done? How, do, how, and, and one of the things in particular, Marco actually was the one, Marco Palmieri was the one who edited the project, even though it was, con- it was originally pitched to me by John. By the time I did it, John had left, and so uh, Marco took it over. And one of the things Marco specifically wanted in the book was um, a first contact situation. He wanted, to show what happens after the first contact. What once this you know the Starfleet ship shows up, they say hello, they they you know exchange scientific information, they trade phone numbers, whatever it is they do when they do first contact. <laughs> then what happens? I'll have my people get in touch with your people. Right. And and the, and the thing is there what does um what happens after that? What is the process? What you know? At that point, you're starting to get ambassadors and, and politicians and, and such involved. And what do they do after the Starfleet ship is buggered off to seek out another new life and new civilization? Yeah. So that was that was part of what we wanted to address there as well. Um, plus, also the fallout from Nemesis. Right. You had the entire Romulan Senate turned to pixie dust. Uh, and then the guy who turned them into pixie dust took over and then got killed. So you've got this massive power vacuum in one of the three major powers of the of the sector. You know that's that's going to have repercussions. Uh, mm, and I wanted to definitely. deal with that as well. So and that that actually led to the the idea of the schism between uh, splitting the Romulan Empire in half was was something I thought uh, could be fun to deal with, and it was for a while. Um, but it, the the challenge there was, and I'm and I'm and I'm glad that it worked for most people because Articles of the Federation is almost entirely people sitting in rooms talking to each other, and yep. that's it. Um, in order to make that work, you've got to have interesting characters, and I, and some of them were ones that were already established. You know, um, Admiral Lakaar and Admiral Ross and uh, Spock, obviously. Um, Wait, you didn't create that Spock character because he was really good. <laughs> I had good material I, on that one. I like him. Yeah, Spock was I the most one of the most fun things I ever wrote was in the Brave and the Bold book two, where I had Spock and Worf mind melding. Oh gosh! And it's interesting because the two of them have such have a lot of similarities in their lives and development and whatnot, a lot more than you realize. Um, and you know, mashing them together like that was just some of the most fun I've ever had writing anything. And also writing aged Spock and aged McCoy snarking at each other. Um, I mean, I, I, I was not the first to do that, obviously. I think I think Peter David did a particularly nice job with that in the Madala Imperative uh, comic mm-hmm. book. But, 
getting to write them just snarking at each other, you know, falling <laughs> into the same old patterns, you know, that they've been doing for a hundred years now, uh, was was tremendous fun also. But but anyway, jumping back to articles, you know, some of the characters were already established. Uh, I also used um, a couple of, of counts, uh, Federation counselors who were established either by myself or by others in other books and, and brought them all in. Um, the Bajoran counselor was uh, General Krim, Stephen Mock's character from the Circle Trilogy. That was actually something Marco oh, yeah. did. Um, although I was... Um, uh, I was I was one of the people uh, I along with some other people helped him develop that. Both both Marco and I were huge fans of the Krim character, and I always wanted to see more done with him. Um, and so Marco came up with the idea of hey let's make him Pejora's new counselor now that they've joined the Federation. Oh, and I cool. ran with that because I really wanted to have I love the idea of of having Krim play a big role in uh, in this, uh, which which he did. Uh, and I you know I was using the Circle trilogy as his, uh, as the basis for how to do his character. So it was, like I said, it was at least partly dealing with established characters and also creating some of my own to, to mm-hmm. fill it out and hopefully coming up with a bunch of different people who could, who could create you know, an interesting dynamic of people trying to run the Federation. So, Yeah, well, and because honestly, anytime Nan comes up in any book after this, I love her scenes. Um, I, I mean... And I think part of what I like about her is what you were talking about with this idea of, you know, you have this utopian society. How do you run it? Well, apparently it runs best when you have a pessimistic, cranky old woman doing it because, <laughs> because she's, she's, she's just pessimistic enough to be able to um, – I, I really picture she's, – she's a lot like Cisco, I feel like, in A Pale Moonlight. She's not afraid to – um, get her hands dirty. Um, Although that was know. totally not what she signed up for. Right, exactly. And that's that's. I mean, she she's. <laughs> um, it, I I was I loved the way Dave wrote her in the Destiny yeah. trilogy in particular. I I and he ran all that by me, which he didn't. He was under no obligation to do, but because um, you know we none of us own this stuff. So uh, and he certainly didn't didn't uh, had no obligation to show him to me, but he did anyway because he wanted to make sure. He did right by the character because he was the first person to write her besides me. Yeah. Well, I'm glad he did because she works perfectly. Yeah, and I love the way he wrote her and, mm-hmm. and the whole... Although it's kind of frustrating because she went to all the trouble to build that coalition and they all got yep. killed in about three minutes. Yeah. But, <laughs> but still, well, the way and, she did it, you know, yeah. was, was great. And and I lo- you know, that, was, that, was, that was some really well done stuff. And it was true to her character. And, you know, this is, this is somebody who definitely is not doing the job she thought she'd be doing. Uh, exactly. When she originally ran for president. Yeah. But it, yeah. It, but that's cool. Uh, that, that that it's a chance to to develop. What one of the fun things is being able to develop characters. You know, like you said, what, what what's been done with Picard over the course of the books. Mm-hmm. You know, Worf growing into the role of first officer. Um, you know, and and the development that's gone on in the Voyager books for for the various characters and how they're mm-hmm. dealing with with coming home and then going back out again. Um, that's that's part of the fun is being and. In particular, it's 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 a very collaborative thing because we're all working together. You know what I mentioned right. before about me, me, Bob, and Dave working on the A Time Two series, uh, and for that matter, what all of the writers—I was the editor, sort of supervising it—but what all the writers did with the Corps of Engineers series because we were the story, the the plots were all standalone, but the character arcs were were a continuous thing, and uh, with different people taking different things. Um, you know, I love like three different writers established. Uh, 
different things about the Dr. Lenz, who was the chief medical officer on the Da Vinci. Yeah, mm. Christy had done some stuff with her, and Christy Golden had done stuff with her in one story. Um, there was another story involving her um, uh, dealing with a small child who was ill, and then um, another story which, in which basically her narcissism came full full. Uh, bore on on dealing with a medical crisis, and then Ilsa Bick came and tied all these three threads together into a story she did called Wounds, which ended with her being pregnant, which caused all sorts of hassle because that wasn't part of the original story. Um, there was something we had talked about doing is getting her pregnant maybe at some point down the line, and then she wound up putting it in the story. And my first thought was, "Crap, we can't do this. We got it." And then I thought about it for a second. It's like, "Well, wait a minute." And so we ran with it. The problem was, it was a monthly series. That was number 56. <laughs> number 57 was already written. William Leisner had turned his, his story in already. And I said, Bill, I need a rewrite. It's not your fault. <laughs> uh, but <laughs> uh, we have to redo this so Lens is pregnant now. And he said, what? Um, but it, and, and the funny thing is, it worked. the story was about 100 times better because what Lens had to do in Bill's story, her being pregnant made it 15 times more poignant, and it led to a whole bunch of other cool developments we got to do. Um, you know, and all because of the different, you know, different people throwing different ideas back and forth at each other. Hmm. And that, you know, you still see that going on with, you know, with with with, with David and with and David George and Dave Mack and yep. um, and and Una and and the rest and Christopher, you know, what they've done developing the various and sundry things. Yeah, it's yeah. fun. It is, um, and I think I think it shows in the writing and, and that the continuity really works. Um, one of the things I thought was really interesting is the fact that you um, were tasked with writing a book after um, the uh, death and winter, uh, and everything was leading up to destiny, but you got to write about Q. How in the world did you, you know, get them to? can we not do a Borg book in here? You know, we're going to have like 20 of them. Can we at least have something else? How did that come about? Because it turned out to be the best one of all of them. Oh, thank you. Um, they they came to me and said, you know, you want to do the... Fo- Actually, it wasn't the follow-up to Death and Winter. It was the follow-up to uh, Resistance. Yes, Resistance, exactly. Ginny had already written Resistance. Uh, and um, so the idea was I was to do the... It was, you know, they were going to do three books for the 20th anniversary in 2007. Um and and basically I said, you know, we got to do a Q story. It's the 20th anniversary. He was, in the first episode, he was this. And I had this idea in the back of my head. I hadn't fleshed it out yet. But just the basics of an idea that there was actually a purpose to everything Q did. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to run with that. And um, the... It, it it sort of came together better than I thought it was going to, but <laughs> the it it was it was a uh, it was my it was my request to to do Q because I thought that for the twentieth anniversary we needed a Q story and also we needed a break from the Borg. I mean, yes, you know, we we did. We, we did the Borg in Resistance. The next one was going to be the Borg, and eventually, you know, Chris, Christopher did the Borg in. in uh, dealt with you know the hue end of Morgan in greater um, yes. than the sum. Um, somewhere in there, we needed something else, and I I really pushed for for doing Q, you know, basically doing the ultimate Q story. Um, so that that really, I mean, it was just basically me saying, "Can I do Q, please? Ha ha! Can I? Can I? Ha ha!" Um, 
no more complicated than that. I loved it, and I liked what you said, you know, because it was interesting to see that Q had a purpose, you know, and, and, and in some ways, you know, him being this kind of like godlike figure that he's not just, you know, somebody who's out there for just the laughs. He's, there, there was a, you know, he had a, right. he could see yeah. the future. He knew what was going to happen. So he engineered, engineers everything um, so that Picard is ready for this final test. Right. Well, it would explain why I took such an interest in him, particularly, particularly, exactly. in, particularly in episodes like Tapestry. Um, you know, uh, even Cupid to some extent, where where it seemed like I mean, Cupid, it, there was a debt to be fulfilled there, so you could pop that off. But the, um, uh, yeah, particularly something like Tapestry and 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 all good things, mm-hmm. there seemed to be a uh, the, like there should have been a greater purpose there, just based on the way he was behaving. Um, and so I tried to tie it all together, um, and like I said, I think it worked, um, and it also gave me a chance to to introduce some new characters. Um, who then later got written out, but um, it's it's been tough keeping it's been tough populating the Enterprise with new crew. Yes. <laughs> that, yeah, it's it's been hard to keep uh, them straight. Luckily, most of them are been the same for for a while now. So yeah, so I, you know some characters worked, some didn't. I, I I these things will happen. My 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 particular thing with Katahata was to have somebody who had a family. I wanted to, you know, specifically deal with yeah, that. And I really liked her. Thank you. One of the things that bugged me about, um, the series was that they came up with this whole idea of there are families on the ship and mm-hmm. none of the main characters really had yeah. families. You know, I mean, Crusher had her kid on board, but then she was gone in the second season and then he was gone after the fourth. Um, uh, you had, you had the O'Brien wedding, which at least went to some extent to address it, but then they went off to deep space nine. Worf had a kid, but that was a disaster on pretty much every level. Yeah, <laughs> you know, uh, it it you know it's 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 interesting. I've been watching, uh, I've been doing a rewatch of Star Trek: The Next Generation on Tor dot com. Yes, you have. And one of the things that that I am being reminded of is how really really terrible the Alexander episode. A lot of people was. say that. Uh, yeah. it, 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 what's funny is that Brian Brian Bonsall actually was not a bad actor, and he was much better when he wasn't paired up with Michael Dorn. When the two of them got together, all they were doing was shouting at each other. Yeah. Um, and there was no, you know, it was just ugh, tiresome, you know, just constant shouting back and forth and, and yelling and screaming and whatnot. Bonsal was much stronger when he was paired up with Luxana Troy or with, yeah. or with Deanna Troy for that matter, you know, and, and you know, and in Rascals and in... Um, imaginary friend where he was with other kids and was just, you know, used as, you know, second kid to the left when they needed other kids around. Um, but he was much, it was much easier to deal with under those circumstances. Um, which, which is hilarious considering that I was the one who actually made him be the new ambassador. Yeah. Well, that worked. I, I, I I cannot take credit for that. That actually, the idea for that was from Terry Osborne, uh, who was also written a few bits of Star Trek fiction. Oh, okay. Um, and she was the one who suggested, Making Alexander the new ambassador, um, which I thought was brilliant. It was it was a it was a perfect, mm-hmm. you know. It keeps the whole legacy thing going on there, and it's the perfect thing for him because he's got his feet in both worlds. Right, exactly. And he's a terrible soldier. Yeah. <laughs> and back in Firstborn, it was established that at least in one alternate future, he became a politician. So yeah, well, okay, that's one that's one of the things that uh, I wanted to get to because 
You haven't written Star Trek in a while. No. Man, we want you back. What? What? Are you? Are you? Are you? Are you going to? Or is there anything in the works? There's nothing in the works right now, aside from the rewatch. Basically, the um. Anytime there's an editorial change, there are some writers who the new editorial regime is not as interested in working with, and the current editorial regime is not interested in working with me. This happens. Um, this happens with tie-in fiction all the time, yeah. um, or any kind of fiction. You know, there were when when John Ordover left, there were a few authors he liked to work with who suddenly found themselves not doing any more stuff, and it happened again with Marco leaving. Um, you know, and that's what happened with me. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it, when you're doing tie-in fiction, you have to be able to work, when you're an editor, which I have also been quite a bit, you have to be able to work with people who you are comfortable working with because there's so much other stuff you got to deal with yeah. as well. And because it's so strongly controlled by editorial to some extent because they have to keep track of all the different plot threads going on, um, the current editors don't want to work with me. And honestly, I respect that decision as somebody who has been on that side of the desk. Mm-hmm. There have been people, you know, who I have been less than comfortable working with uh, or who I have worked with and regretted it later. Um, and not everybody gets along with everybody else. You know, yeah. I, I, to give one example from my own career, I had pitched a bunch of Buffy the Vampire Slayer novels back in the late 90s. Um, I had worked on the Watcher's Guide and done a novelization called The Xander Years. And I pitched like four or five different uh, Buffy novels. And the editor didn't go for any of them, and she finally just said, look, this isn't working. You and I obviously aren't on the same wavelength, and so I, you know, I gave up on that. And then years later, uh, that editor had long since moved on, and I was pitching actually alias novels to one of the editors over there, and that same editor was responsible, now responsible for the Buffy line. And one of the proposals that I had pitched way back in the late 90s wound up becoming the novel The Deathless. Oh. <laughs> um, you know, the ideas don't go bad. And, you know, sometimes you just got to wait for wait right. for it to come around on the guitar again, as, as Arlo Guthrie would say. And, and yeah, right. in this case, you know, in the, like in the case of the Buffy novel, that, that old idea finally had somewhere to go uh, because there was an editor who was more receptive to it. So, you know, it, it may come around on the guitar again. It may not. I don't know. Okay. No, that's good. I've got plenty to keep me busy right now. <laughs> good. Good. I, it's, honestly, this is giving me an opportunity to work on my own stuff that I keep the copyright on, which as much mm-hmm. fun as tie-in fiction is and as much as I enjoy it and as much as I've done of it, and I'm continuing to do, I've got a leverage novel coming out next year. Um, I I really want to focus on stuff that, that is mine, you know. Um, yeah. I've got I've got my, my precinct series of fantasy police procedurals, which are kind of Law and Order meets Lord of the Rings. Um, I've got I've got three books out in that with two more coming out in 2013. Um, I've got my superhero police procedural called SCPD, the Super City Police Department. I've got a series of uh, short stories, urban fantasy short stories in Key West. Um, I've got some comic book work in the works that I can't talk about yet because the contracts aren't signed yet. But um, uh, you know, I've got I've got stuff to keep me busy, and um, you know, I I at least. I'm especially grateful that, that Tor.com asked me to do the rewatch because it's allowing me to continue to keep my, my toes in the Star Trek pool. Um, and the rewatch is fun. I am having so much fun with that. Yeah, it's a good series. If if Listeners, if you haven't checked that out, you need to at Tor.com. It's a great rewatch. Yeah, I'm, I'm in the sixth season at this point. So, um, and should still be when the, uh, uh, by the time this goes live. But, um, it's 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 been a lot of fun. I mean, parts of it have been less fun than others, like 
you know the entire first season practically. Although there were some gems, <laughs> in, there were some gems in there too. There was there there's, I there there are some episodes of the first season that are actually much better than people give them credit for. Same for the second season. And you weren't getting to watch them on Blu-ray yet, so no. But I don't care about that so much. Okay. I mean, you know, most of the time I'm watching it on my laptop anyway because oh, it's gotcha. easier to, you know, yeah. I, I I don't need to see every single pixel of detail. I just, you know, yeah. Um, and the uh, I I'm perfectly happy to just you know watch it <laughs> whatever format I've got. Of course, I've, I still have all the old VHS tapes from when I recorded it on my VCR back in, oh, when the show awesome. was on the air the first time. P.S. I they're in the garage, too. and I have nothing to play them on, but I still have the tapes. <laughs> well, I was going to ask you, uh, you know, not writing for for uh, Trek novels for a while. Uh, what do you what do you see as being um, uh, where Trek novels are now? Just kind of the state of of uh, Star Trek and the and the novel series. I haven't been keeping up with them as okay. much. So I'm not really sure what it is. I mean, I, every once in a while, people, I'll get a question from somebody who wants to check on something, particularly if it relates to President Baco or the Klingons, um, since those are two things that I had a big hand in. Um, but uh, I, I really couldn't say one gotcha. way or the other. I'm glad to see that the Typhon Pact has become a big thing. Because yeah. huh, I'm the I'm the one who created it, pretty much. Um, well, me and Marco both. Basically, that was that was me and Marco having a lunch. Um, when we were when after I got the assignment to do a singular destiny and trying to figure out we were originally going to call it the covenant and then it turned out Halo had something called the covenant so we couldn't do that yes um but uh, we we eventually went with the the Typhon Pact and I'm I'm glad to see that that is continuing yeah it's been a great storyline and and I'm I'm I haven't I only know secondhand what's been going on with Deep Space Nine but I'm fascinated by by the way they've basically jumped forward and and shaken things up over there. Well, they blew it up, so... Oh, did they? Yeah. I did, yeah. I did not know that. Okay. Yeah. Um, well, that sucks. Sorry to spoil <laughs> it for you. <laughs> okay. Um, the thing is that that is perfectly in keeping with Deep Space Nine. Change, change yep, was exactly. always the order of the day on DS9. So, you know, it made sense that if you're going to jump ahead a few years that, that, nothing, that, that a lot of things are not going to be in the same place they were. Yep. Um, well, I'm looking forward to talking to David because, you know, uh, a lot of people were disheartened when rough beasts of the empire came out because it was so like cisco was in this place that we had never even thought he would be and then you know his last two books he brought it back so if you read those as a trilogy it really makes a lot of sense right you know when you're just waiting rough beasts of the empire and then thinking okay are we ever going to get another deep space nine novel again what's going to go on but he he worked it perfectly so it makes so much sense yeah um, and so, yeah, I, I trust him implicitly. I'm glad that he's going to yeah. continue to be working in Deep Space Nine. So, yeah, I love David. He's he's uh, I've, I've I've only I've worked with him as an editor really only once on the uh, Captain Stable anthology, uh, where he did a wonderful Tamora Sulu story. But he's he he and I have been friends for ages, and and, and yeah. we we've gone back and forth on stuff. You know, just you know, particularly when I was when I was more active in the in the franchise. But even even since then, every once in a while, just talking about stuff. And and yeah, he's a great guy. Yeah, and, and an excellent writer. He really is. Yeah, yeah. We're talking and trying to work out a time for him to be on the show, so I can't wait to get to speak excellent. to him. So don't ask him about the Mets. Seriously, he'll just he'll just go on and on and on complaining about everything. Just, you know, he's a Good to he's know. a Mets, he's a Mets fan from way back. I'm a Yankee I, fan, so you know I I yeah. just mock him. But uh... <laughs> <laughs> oh man, well you guys have so many sports teams up there to choose from. So it's it's like you know you just take your pick. Well, one of the things we like to do here is just kind of ask the authors um, 
what they enjoy reading that doesn't necessarily have anything to do with Star Trek? What are the things that you might pick up if you peruse the bookstore at the Strand or Barnes & Noble? Um, my current uh, favorite writer is George Pelicanos, who uh, is a... His books are in the mystery section, but they're not really mysteries. Um, he he writes urban dramas. Uh, I first actually was introduced to Pelicanos through the HBO show The Wire, where he was one of the staff writers. Um, and then I discovered that he was a novelist who had been had brought in um, mainly because the subject matter he tackles and the subject matter The Wire tackles uh, was very similar. And he just does an amazing job of really creating excellent characters who are middle class or lower. And he just the cap, the city of Washington D.C. is is really the only consistent character throughout all his books. In, in much the same way, South Florida is the only consistent character in Carl Hyacinth's books. Um, some of his books take place like back in the '40s and the '70s and the '80s, contemporary and so on. And you know he's got some regular characters who who show up uh, periodically. Um, some recurring ones, but he just he he creates a sense of place so incredibly well, um, hmm. and and shows shows a side of humanity in DC that you don't see represented very often, and I, that's something I'm particularly interested in. I also have a tendency to read a lot of baseball books. Um, that, that's ba- baseball is a hobby, although it's becoming a professional thing because I'm actually um, uh, co-editing a Yankees annual uh, that's going to be published in the spring, which is going to be a collection oh, very of very cool. Yankees. Hmm. So. So yes, even it, it, that, that's the joy of being a freelancer. You don't have hobbies because um, even your hobbies become something you wind up work, working professionally, whether you want to yeah, do or not. You know. That's me, <laughs> for sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, anything that you would like to just share with our listeners about uh, what you're working on and where they can follow you and, and get in touch with you and all those kind of good things? You can find me online. My website is decandido.net, my last name, .net. Uh, from there, there are ordering links for all my most recent fiction, including the precinct books that I just mentioned, uh, SCPD, um, a thriller I did called no, 30, uh, Vampire Anthology, uh, Shared World Vampire Anthology with Jonathan Mayberry called The Wars. You can pre-order my Leverage novel. There's also, I did a Farscape comic book uh, for three years. Oh, good show. Yeah, I wor- we actually, um, I worked with Rockne O'Bannon on that. That was uh, post-finale stuff. It was all after the Peacekeeper War, so it was basically season five of the show, uh, which we did as a Excellent. comic book uh, for for a bunch of years. And uh, we also, I did a couple of uh, side miniseries with Dargo that took place during the series. And actually, Dave Mack worked with Rockby on an eight-issue Scorpius series that was all part of that. Oh, very cool. That's great. Those are available from Boom Studios. And again, there's ordering links at decandido.net. Also from there, there are links to my blog, my Facebook page, my Twitter feed. Um, if you... Give me a friend request on Facebook. I'll accept it. I'm 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 fairly open that way. Um, just go to just search for Keith DeCandido, not Keith R A DeCandido. That's the author page that I have no control over that they just created from my Wikipedia page. So, um, but again, if you go to DeCandido.net, there's a link there. That that also has a link to the podcast I do, which is a pop culture podcast, and Dead Kitchen Radio, which is my own podcast where I babble about myself. I've already, on past episodes of Dead Kitchen Radio, I've done in-depth talks about the Corps of Engineers series and about the Klingon novels. Oh, that's great. Yeah. We'll definitely want to get people there because uh, those are those are some of your most popular novels I know from being on the BBS boards, you know, that uh, I was getting people asking, like, ask Keith this, ask Keith that, you know, so... <laughs> <laughs> I've got two short story collections. One is called Tales from Dragon Precinct, which is based on the uh, fantasy police procedural series I did. The first three books, Dragon Precinct, Unicorn Precinct, and Goblin Precinct, are all available now. 
Uh, the short story collection will be out in the spring, and then Griffin Precincts, the fourth book, will be out probably in the fall. And um, and I got some other stuff in the works as well that I can't really talk about yet. But again, if you go to my website at decandidote.net, there's ordering links for all the current stuff. Excellent. Excellent. Well, that's great. Well, Keith, I really want to thank you so much for coming on. It's um, I've been so thankful for uh, just the Star Trek authors in general and their uh, kindness for giving us their time. Um, you know, your work has, has been some of my favorite over the last few years. And um, I just I want to thank you for coming on. And thank you so much for joining us today, Keith. Well, Chris, that was an interesting and excellent interview with Keith. So much fun to get to talk to the authors and just um, be able to pick their brains, one, and, and two, just really hear the what goes into writing a Trek book. It really is interesting. You know, I have often over the years aspired to write at least Trek short stories, if not novels, on my own. And I have had ideas here and there over the years. But until you talk to the authors like we are, you you really don't realize all the behind the scenes stuff, all the work, all the thought process uh, that goes into writing these novels. So it really is fascinating. I definitely agree. And I um, can't wait for next week. We're going to have another great interview. Um, Get the chance to talk to Una McCormick, um, who just authored uh, the recent book in the Typhon Pack series, Brinkmanship. Um, So it should be a great interview. Really looking forward to that as well. That sounds excellent. I can't wait for that myself. Well, Matthew, let's tell everyone where they can contact us if they'd like to share their thoughts on, you know, anything we talked about today. Just go over to trek.fm slash contact. There's a form there, and that'll come to Matthew and myself. And, of course, you can find us all around on social media over at Facebook, facebook.com slash trek.fm. Uh, you can find us on Twitter under username trek.fm as well. And, uh, Matthew, what if people want to talk to you directly? Yeah, I'm all over the Twitters. Uh, so if you uh, hit me up at uh, MattRushing02, give me a follow. Let me know you uh, followed me, and I'll, I'll definitely talk back to you and talk about all sorts of things. Obviously, Star Trek right now is huge. Uh, Star Trek Into Darkness, The Hobbit, um, Man of Steel, whatever you want to talk about, I'm, I'm your man. Excellent. Yeah. And if anyone wants to find me, you can find me on Twitter as well. My username is C Brian Jones. That's Brian with a Y. And uh, if you follow me, send me an at reply and say hello. Uh, I'll certainly chat you up. Always happy to talk about Star Trek, uh, college football, design Japan, all kinds of stuff. Uh, ALF also, if you're a big ALF fan, let me know because I'll definitely talk to you about ALF. Uh, and, and, and that famous cliffhanger. But anyway... <laughs> You'll find me there. And be sure to drop by Trek.fm as well. Uh, We have 10 shows on the network devoted to everything from the series themselves, discussion of the episodes, to discussions of the creative work outside of Star Trek by those who worked on the show. Uh, So there's something there for everyone right over there at Trek.fm. And don't forget to give us a a follow uh, as well on the iTunes, uh, a review there as well. we really do uh, appreciate all those who already have. It does help people uh, just find the show. And, and so um, we would love to have um, as many listeners as possible who love Trek books to be able to find our show on iTunes. So thank you so much for those who have already given their reviews. We really do appreciate you listening. Absolutely. So until next time, everyone, enjoy your books, and we'll see you on the next Literary Treks. What do you call that light reading? To each his own, number one.